Woody, I don't think we've ever had an episode as hyped as much as this one. The Bozzer coming onto the pod, we couldn't have publicized it any more than we did. But it's safe to say we melted a little bit under the pressure. Damo, we melted big time under the pressure of having such a high-profile guest at the nightclub. And for that, Damo, we've gone way over time. And so we're releasing a part two of the Mark Bosnich Premier League nightclub special. But for now, listen to part one. Mark, tell them what they're listening to. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Bosnich, and you are listening to the Premier League nightclub. Charmin, he's done it! Four! Aguero! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Premier League Nightclub podcast. My name is Damon, and with me, of course, I have Woody. Uh, but Woody, quite frankly, you're not important in this in this situation because we also have the one and only Mark Bosnich. Bozza, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this, so thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Boz, like I was saying to you off air just before we started, you were... The number one guest Damon and I had on our list when we started the podcast a year and a half ago. And well, how it's... come it's taking me so long to come on if I was number one? I'm, I'm all upset. You tell us. You tell us. <laughs> we have multiple, Boz, multiple I... discussions. Boz I, 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 Boz, I don't want to bring you. I didn't want to bring this up on air. But if you check your DMs on Instagram, I reckon <laughs> I met you on my account. Oh, maybe Instagram. Okay. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, Instagram. Yeah, yeah. My fiance Sarah, takes care of the Instagram a lot. So oh, no worries, DM no worries. me on if you DM me on Twitter, then I would, you know what I mean? That Instagram, I'm still trying to get my head around it. So oh, that's yeah, probably, okay. after, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How does that work out or, or how do I supposed to do it? But now after the program, you watch now after the program, I'll be answering. So I'll be going, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, 100%. percent and you notice after this, we are going to put every single highlight that we can legally put up on our Instagram that we've got of you. So our <laughs> socials right. are going to be just a Mark Bosnich feed. Um, Sounds good. uh, We got we got in contact with you with through our good mate James Dodd, who you've got a show with on Fox Sports. Um, Now James said that he's a bit bossy in the studio, and that he's lot he is sort of forcing you to watch every single game of the Premier League. How's the sleeping schedule holding up? Well, not not particularly good, but he's exactly right. Um, (laughs) uh, And we're very very fortunate. But it must be said, you know, over the over the recent years, we can now access obviously the the mini matches and the quick ones or the dynamic ones. So it makes it a lot easier. Um, but because of his extensive knowledge, not only the Premier League, but Spain, Portugal, everywhere, he's basically, without even saying anything, has forced me, um, you know, to do that. So I've been doing my, what I used to do um, when we had the Premier League rights. And, uh, you know, I used to like take notes. I'll show you, you know, of a game and write out the program and everything. So I think oh, that wow. one is... There you go. That's Brighton versus Manchester United and then take notes and then I write a report. So I want to be on the ball because he is so good. I've actually said to him, look, listen, maybe it's time that we reverse roles and I ask you about the game <laughs> because he knows so much about them. But um, and it's, it's been really good. So we're going to try to expand that in, in the coming months. I'm going to look to try to get either a magnetic board for the time being or, or even one of those computer screens to it. So then basically we can ask each other questions in terms of, you know, it's just so important these days. And, that, and that's how football's evolved. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really cool with that because I know a lot about that, of how teams play and, and what they try to do to maybe get an extra man in midfield or to, to sort of to draw the other team on so they can hit them on the break. 
Um, but like I said, it's, it's been absolutely fantastic. And James is a real breath of fresh air. Like I said, and his, his knowledge is, is extensive, which is good for me because sometimes I forget the names of the players and, and I'll go, <laughs> and, and, and he'll finish the sentence for me. I go, yeah, that's him. That's him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, James is a good man. We, um, I've even had some small debates with him over Twitter and it's, it's hard to prove myself right with him. He's very uh, specific in his thoughts and Extent- he knows his stuff, to be fair extensive Damon or, or another word is thorough and when you come up against a person who's thorough you've, you've got to be thorough back so hence why like I said yeah. uh, I've been watching as many games as possible uh, live so then I know if you throw something at me as long as I get the names right I'm right up with you too easy um, I've just got one thing to say about the current start of the Premier League because obviously we're going to get stuck into your career and a few other yeah. things which we're keen to do but Look, if someone told you at the end of game week five that yeah. uh, one of your previous clubs would sit second and the other one would sit 14th, I'm guessing yeah. you probably would have guessed it wrong in the way those orders uh, have lined up. A hundred percent. Look, for me, it's been an amazing start. We all know about the COVID-19 situation. You guys have suffered as, as much as everyone with your lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the, the restart and then the shortened preseason and way back into it and no crowds as, as, metaphorically, not, not entirely, but metaphorically, throwing the chips in the air, so to speak. So um, I think Aston Villa as well have, have benefited from the fact that of, of their good signings they've made. Um, we can go on and talk about that, but we'll be here all day. But I think the, the best thing that they've really benefited from is the fact that they re-signed Jack Grealish. And I think that was a real statement to everyone to say that we're a serious club. Uh, we want to keep our best players and, and, and we're going places. And, uh, and that win, and I, I spoke, I actually did an interview last night with uh, a lady called Ali Drew and her, part, and her uh, uh, cohort, uh, Uni, on Sportology in the UK. And, uh, and they were asking in terms of Aston Villa, and I said, don't underestimate how important that victory against Liverpool is going to be in terms of their confidence. Um, because confidence and momentum, it means so much. Uh, and yes, a lot of people say, well, let's see how they go when they lose a couple of games. But right this moment in time, they deserve to be celebrated. Like you said, they're second in the league, uh, a, a game in hand as well. And, and they're doing so well. And Dean Smith and John Terry, John Terry, another one who's got mountains of experience at the very highest level. Massive difference and advantage when you've got someone like that in your dressing room, reinforcing what the manager says or telling you things because you know it's come from somebody who's the real deal. Um, at this moment in time, like I said, it's, it's, it's plain sailing. Talk to us again in about another 20 games, but right now, just enjoy it. <laughs> i tell you what, Boz, I think it's, it's an interesting thing you brought up because it's one of the things that really actually probably pisses me off about the Premier League and some of the punditry that goes around and the way the media works is that if we look at that game, the Aston Villa-Liverpool game, obviously, a mental game, mental game. Mm. And a lot of people, I guess, maybe were trying to take the shine off Villa and saying, hey, look, what is it that Liverpool did wrong? How come they conceded seven yeah. goals? And then on the flip side, I don't see as many people, and I hate when this happens, you don't see people say, you know, what did Villa do right? Because yeah. clearly they put themselves in a position where they can actually put seven past the champions. And that's, for me, one of the things that I actually find pretty refreshing about your punditry and your commentary as well is that you don't play devil's advocate. You actually look at the team that's playing better and in this yeah. case, it was Aston Villa. And we've seen, you know, likes of Everton. It's not about who concedes the goals. You have to put yourself in the position to score those goals and win those games. And I think that's a very good point that you make. And I'm with you. I mean, I, I don't hate anything. Not even my worst enemies. I, I believe it clouds your judgment. But, um, you know, I, I'm 100% with you. For another great example is on the weekend. But I think, to be fair to Jose Marino, he summed it up. You know, when I was asking him after the game, 
when they're winning three 0 against West Ham. You know what went wrong? What, and he said, well, he said he'll have a look when he has a look at the video from his own personal team. But from the top of his head, he said it's football. It's what West Ham did that was really, really good. And I think that that needs to be focused upon. It can't just be, you know, uh, we understand and we know who the big clubs are and why they're the big clubs and so forth. But you know, you just can't always just turn around and say, oh, it's because of this or because of that, because of that. And you haven't actually said what the real reason is because of, because the opposition, whoever they may be, have played fantastic, um, played yeah. at their full potential, exploited weaknesses of the opposition. And, and I think it's good for the competition as well. Um, because, you know, I think if we all woke up that morning and saw Liverpool 7, Aston Villa 2, I don't think there would have been too many of us would have been really shocked, to be honest. But when mm. we saw it the other way, it was like, I don't know about you guys. But I was like, was that, is that a misprint? I went straight then to watch it to see whether or not it was actually 7-2 for Aston Villa. <laughs> But then you watch the game and exactly the same with West Ham, you know, with what they did, how they come back into it. Um, and you've got to give credit to the, to the teams that, that have done well during that game or else what's the use? You might as well just have, you know, like you have a few, few, few big sides and that's it really. And the rest of you just turn around and say cannon fodder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, mm. as, a, as a United fan, I, after that Tottenham game, I could barely sleep. I felt sick, but the, the, the following yeah. game made me feel a little bit better for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. Well, the, not only the following game, you're right, Dane, but also, you know, the game against PSG. And, and yeah, it's another yeah. wonderful example because I spoke about this last night as well um, uh, to, those, to those two, uh, to the gentleman and the lady about, uh, about, you know, controlling the game. And we all think because of what Barcelona did, Barcelona transcended football in a way. But remember... And this, I'm talking about the Barcelona from Pep Guardiola yep. onwards. They had Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, three of the best players you, you could argue of all time. And their football was based around because it was their strength possession. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and, you know, if you heard Guardiola speak, if you read his book, he realised that from a defensive perspective, they could be vulnerable. So he said, in a way, keeping possession guaranteed the other team wasn't going to score a goal. Now, everybody saw how beautiful that was and it was absolutely fantastic era of football. You know, and understandably so, people tried to copy it. But what you've got to realise is that, you know, not every team, and maybe not every team for quite some time, have got three players that I just mentioned, some of the other players that they had. And not every team is suited like that. So controlling games throughout possession is one thing, but you can control games in other ways. You can control it without possession. Now, Manchester United only had 39% possession against PSG, but they still won the game. So people say because they obviously realise... Mm what their strengths are, the fact that if they went to go toe-to-toe possession-wise, they'd probably come off second best. And they chose to control the game in a different way. Now, whether they control the game completely in that way is debatable. There's no doubt about that. But one thing that's not debatable is that they they won the game. And that's the second time they've won uh, in Paris uh, within the space of 18 months. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I feel like on your talk about how you can control the game without having majority possession. I think Mourinho has probably been the biggest advocate for that over the last few years. And, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit biased, but I would honestly say that Man United were clearly the better team against Paris for large parts of that. And tactically as well, both teams, it was a bit of a chess game, which I found incredibly interesting and something that Solskjaer probably been questioned about for a long time. Yeah. And Damon, Uh, just what you said, just what you said then. And I agree with you. I, like I thought, and I may be a bit biased, just like yourself, that Man United were the better team for, mm-hmm. for, the, for the vast majority of the game. Like I said, it's debatable about the control of the game and how you define it. But it just goes to show, like I said, that they, that they controlled the game to what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
without possession. So it can be done both ways and it can be done in between as well. You just got to decide as a manager what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, vice versa in terms of the opposition, what your players can and can't do, and then work out a game plan for that specific game. Yeah, mm, absolutely. And I think that was, that was a big telling feature against the game, against PSG, because if you look at the quality of chances created, Man United were well and truly in front. They could have sunk poor four past Paris in that game. And I think, yep. you know, the fact that they didn't is probably, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a, a let off on the scoreline in Paris's sense. But Boz, just quickly uh, swinging back to just the Premier League this season, can you give us a quick overview of maybe what your predictions are of top four and relegation bottom three this season? Yeah. Well, from what we've seen thus far, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, we will have a title race between Liverpool and Man City eventually. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, even after what? Yeah, I still think that. But I think the other places are really up for grabs. Um, Everton have really impressed. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti's found a lovely way to play with the players that he's, that he's brought in. I think Decore, Alan, uh, and Yames have been absolutely fantastic. Um, Richarlison's an excellent player and Calvert-Lewin has showed you know, what he can do when he's provided with the right service um, uh, Aston Villa you've spoken about as well uh, already and uh, you know I, I, if I was Aston Villa and a lot of people say oh yeah you're getting ahead of yourself but I'd be truly thinking with the team they've got and what they've shown thus far they should be aiming for a top four place I personally think they'll get in the top six I don't think they'll make the top four 100%, but there's no 100%. reason why not Arsenal, Arsenal have been a, a massive difference under Mikel Alteta um, we've seen that the, the way they want to play, uh, it, it's lovely football to watch. It suits a lot of the players that he has. And it's just a different mentality about them as well. They're, they're a much harder team to break down and to beat. And it must warm the hearts of Arsenal fans to say, right, we think that, that we're back on the way. Spurs, Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea, I think, more, uh, more so will be there and thereabouts. Frank Lampard so far, in my opinion, has done a very good job. It's very difficult when you get so many young players in, especially, and new players. Uh, to bed them down into a, into a way of playing which which suits everybody. Uh, Spurs we've just spoken about. And let's, not, you know, let's be honest here. I mean, it was a magnificent fight back by West Ham. But Spurs could have really put that game beyond doubt, you know, really Absolutely. at half time. Mm-hmm. But it should have been beyond doubt anyway. And really, since the first half against Southampton, when they come back then and won 5-2 against Southampton, they've looked, they've looked tremendous as well. Uh, Wolves, dangerous side. Leeds United provided something completely different with Marcello Bielsa and the way that he plays. Uh, I think they've become a little bit everyone's surrogate side um, <laughs> because it's been so entertaining the way they've played. So um, then you go down, we talked about Man United who are 15th at the moment, but they'll be all going. So that top four for me, um, although I don't think it's completely set with the title, especially with Van Dyke now being out for the whole season, I do think once Man City get into a role, they're going to be very, very difficult to stop. And I think the biggest challenges mm. will be Liverpool. Uh, but in terms of the top four, you, you heard me just mention about half a, do- half a dozen teams there. Uh, in terms of the bottom, from what I've seen now, um, unfortunately for Fulham and Fulham supporters, um, I really don't see much light at the end of the tunnel for them. I think Sheffield United have been a little bit unfortunate thus far. Um, I don't think that they will be in the bottom three. West Brom, although their manager's Croatian, which is my origin, and I've got a soft mm. spot for him, Slavin Bilic, I think that they'll be joining Fulham as well. And then you're going to say, I'd say there's going to be a bit of a toss-up. Uh, Burnley, uh, I already mentioned that Burnley will definitely be there and thereabouts. Brighton have got to be careful, although they play some lovely football, but they've just got to be careful. I think Crystal Palace will be okay. Newcastle will be okay. Uh, Southampton could get dragged down, but ultimately I think they're okay. So I think the relegated teams will be Fulham, from what I've seen, Fulham, West Brom, 
and a toss-up between Burnley and Brighton. That's what I've seen thus far. But the, the real, like I said, the real interesting thing is going to be to see who finishes inside that top four with Manchester City and Liverpool. Mm-hmm. There are so many sides there and thereabouts who have shown so much promise thus far uh, that you couldn't rule any of them out, especially Everton. I, I must say, I was so, so impressed, probably, uh, with the exception maybe of uh, Aston Villa, but I'm a little bit biased to that. But Everton have <laughs> really, really shown some top quality. Yeah, And they have got some quality in their team. They can change games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this season's going to throw up so many different things in its own way. I mean, obviously, last season we saw a very unique situation, but it's sort of going to be a follow-on effect quite clearly with more games, more quickly, all that sort of stuff. It is really important now that we do move on to your career and talk about yourself a little bit. We, okay. Woody and... <laughs> it's my favorite Woody and, subject. <laughs> Woody and I have done, uh, well, for the last few hours and last couple of days, really, have been looking into some stuff that, obviously, we were quite young at the time and learning yeah. new stuff and recapping stuff we already sort of knew, all that sort of stuff. And so we're very excited about this and we, obviously, speaking to you now, we're going to get the best insight possible and hopefully all our listeners will as well. Um, I just want to start at Aston Villa, actually. I know it might be a bit different to how you've done other interviews, but I feel no, like all of, yeah, all of them started with um, how you got into football and how you went to Man United. But I, I just want to start at Villa and sort of work our way back if we, yeah. if we can do that. And my first question to you is, um, Aston Villa have openly said... Uh, over, mm. since you signed for them, that they were over the moon to get you, especially considering you were a Manchester United player within 12 months before going there. I know you went back to Sydney briefly. Yeah. Um, but w- were there other clubs looking at you at the time or was Villa the only one? Uh, at the time, I think, it was, I, I think it was pretty much only one serious one in terms of Aston Villa. There was always that doubt of that whether or not I could get the work permit or not. So... Uh, that was the genuine doubt. And they definitely had mm-hmm. the inside running because my agent at the time was very, very close to the, to the Villa people, especially the manager, okay. Ron Atkinson, who also had seen me play for Manchester United Reserves, ironically, when he was at Sheffield Wednesday. And I played against Sheffield United Wednesday Reserves and Sheffield Wednesday in the, in the Youth Cup for Man United. And he was like, like he, he was you know, impressed. So I would say, yes, I, I think serious, in terms of serious, from England, there were other suitors from other countries, but from England, definitely. It was Aston Villa, and I really wanted to go back to England because, for me, it was the place to be, especially as a goalkeeper. Um, you know, it was difficult enough moving over there, uh, uh, you know, at such a young age anyway, and change, complete change of pretty much everything, uh, let alone if I had to then learn another language as well. So it was a little yeah. bit lazy like that. Yeah, I'd rather just get <laughs> trained, come home, rest, <laughs> rather than train, come home and start learning another language. <laughs> Um, well, it was interesting, Boz, that you, you mentioned Ron Atkinson because, uh, you know, I was doing a little bit digging and, and, you know, Ron had a pretty good run with Villa and then yeah. I think it was, things went sour really quickly and that I just sort of draw parallels with your time at Villa as well. I mean, you came runners-up in the first Premier League season in 92 yeah. um, And if you look at the, the years surrounding that, you went from second to 10th and then yeah. you dropped down to 18th and I think that was a, a season where there were 22 teams in the Premier League, and, and then you guys only survived by three points. Correct. Um, and so when Rod Atkinson sort of it, it went sour, like let's be real, it went mm. sour pretty quickly. Brian Little came in, and you know made his much lauded like return to Villa. Yeah. He turned over fifty percent of the squad. I think that's what a lot of people forget. So, as a young player coming to Villa, you know you, you'd been there a few years. 
did what did he sit down with you and say, "Hey, Boz, like you know, I, I see you in my long term plans. This is what the this is what the team's looking like." like yeah. What did he do? No, it didn't. And look, it was a, it was a massive jolt for me because I was very very close, obviously, to Ryan Atkinson. I was his signing, and he gave me my chance. A fantastic manager. A lot of people don't forget forget how great a manager he actually was. He managed in Spain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he went, it was a it was a massive jolt, and especially to a young player like myself. And uh, and look. Brian Little did get me in, but I mean, he just said to me, he said, you know, I know you were very, very close to Big Ron and I know it must have really upset you. Um, but he just said to me, look, listen, you know, I, I don't think your head is at the right, I remember him saying this, I don't think your head is in the right place at this moment in time because of what's occurred. So I'm going to leave you out for a couple of games. And then he said, basically, it's up to you. It's up to you if you want to get your place back or not. That's all he left of that. And I was a little bit like that because of what happened to Ron and I didn't really know you know, whether or not I was 100% to stay. Um, so I sort of just went with it, so to speak. And, and like you said, then towards the end of that season, it got very hairy. Um, you know, hairy, scary. That's what I mean when I say mm. hairy. Um, in terms of the relegation thing, and I think it, yeah. I think it was safe by the last game, but still it was an experience that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. It was, it was yeah. so, so hard. And, so, and, uh, and something like I said to you, that you, just, you want to take as an experience, but say, all right, that's it. Um, and then pre-season came. Nothing basically was said, but I just said, look, for, for, you know, at that stage, I was like, I didn't really know whether I'd be there, where I won. I know there was some, there was, again, some suitors that were coming in um, asking about my availability. I think it was Newcastle, I think Everton at the time, even Big Ron when he went to Coventry. Um, and, uh, and obviously from abroad as well, like, like they had been in the past. But I just said, look, listen, the bottom line is I've got a long-term contract. You know, it's no use me having my head in that. I need to be playing put in a really good preseason, started the next season, and the, the team started off really well. We were playing against Manchester United at Villa Park. It was a famous game when afterwards when Alan Hansen said to Man United, basically, you don't win anything with kids. They went, <laughs> yeah. they went on to win the double that year, speaking yeah. about punditry. <laughs> <laughs> right? and, uh, and we didn't really look back that season. You know, we, we'd signed Savo Milosevic from Partizan Belgrade for what was then a club record of £3.5 million. He struck up a great partnership with Dwight York. Uh, Ian Taylor had come in. Mark Draper, Gareth Southgate, Gareth Southgate who, who transformed from a midfielder into a centre-back and played three at mm. the back. Uh, the late Hugo Ekihog was fantastic. Paul McGrath, you know, Alan Wright, Gary Charles. It, it was a really good young side. And that season, and when we come fourth in the league, semi-finals of the FA Cup only were picked by Liverpool, who, who were a bit of our bogey team that year, and mm. obviously won the League Cup at Wembley. So it was an absolutely fantastic team. And you know, a lot of people, and including some of the players at Man United, I mean, they always ask, you know, you know, why didn't you go on to win? And that's that's a really good question. Why didn't we? And because you know, we improved the following year. We went and got Sasha Churchich from um, from who was at Bolton at the time. Uh, Tommy Johnson had come in as well. Uh, sorry, Tommy Johnson was already there from last year, but it was a really good squad and all that. Stan Collymore came in a couple of years later, but we couldn't quite replicate what we did that year for whatever reason that may be. We just couldn't quite replicate it. Yeah, and, and I think that's a thing that actually, you know, causes a lot of people to question that early time at Villa. Yeah. Not many, t- not many teams have so much success at a young age. And no. it's, it's really interesting how and how and why, and I guess you sort of answered my question, is that it was really strange that it didn't translate as you guys matured as a squad. Yeah. Um, because in hindsight, you guys gelled really, really quickly together and your yeah, results came very, thick and fast. Very quickly. Like I said to you, I mean... We, we, uh, you know, you could go back forensically if you like and sort of say, you know, there were, there was certain, there's always, you know, I always have this saying when I'm doing punditry as well about men and moments. And 
there's always those little moments that they can like you know for example you know like you could go through the following years and all that there was just those little moments where you know things would occur and you know we had andy townsend as well very experienced player um you know ex-captain of the republic of ireland he does the great some great punditry now with the premier league and he was one we always looked up to but it was always you know there was times where sometimes we might lose a game. And I remember he would say something like, oh, look, if we want to win the title, I really don't think we, we, we could afford to lose today. You know, I think perhaps little things like that, you know, just little things like that. And that's not being disparaging towards Andy. Like I said, he was a fantastic player and captain. Um, but I think that that just summed up the general probably feeling amongst the team, the majority, put it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, if you add to that the fact that as well, it was Aston Villa was a, a massive club and a mighty club, um, but the expectations on winning trophies is perhaps not as high as it should be. So, so in, in, not in comparison to Chelsea at that at that moment, maybe now or since the Abramovich era, but say in comparison to the Man United, you know, the, the, it was there. The pressure was there to yeah. win the trophies. There was no, okay, you know, if we finish, you know, if we finish second this year and we win a cup, that's okay. There was none of that. It was like yeah. no, no, no. We, we've got to pretty much win every trophy. Mm-hmm. So whether it was a bit of that, like I said, or that at, at crucial times in the future that, you know, maybe all of us didn't perform like we, like we showed in that first season, I don't really know. I, I think about that quite a lot, to be honest, because I, and like I said, when I went to Manchester United and we played the World Club Championship game against Palmeiras in Tokyo and we beat Palmeiras 1-0 and we're having a bit of a drink in one of the boys' room afterwards, um, and we're just talking in general, and Yorkie was there. I remember we're just talking, and it came up. Roy Keane was there, Ryan Giggs. It was Ryan Giggs who actually said it. He said, can mm. I ask you a question, you and Yorkie? And we're like, yeah, okay. Well, we didn't know what he was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he goes, why did you win more trophies at Aston Villa? And it was a similar reaction to what I just had with you now. We didn't quite have the answer, to be honest. He said, because, mm. you know, because he was saying, well, we, because we used to give them a lot of problems at Manchester United. He said, you know, we used to always look at you guys and we should go through the squads 1v1 and it wasn't there wasn't many better squads if any so that really surprised White and I when they said that but maybe it was for someone like that to say that to us at the time you know what I mean it's kind of yeah. like me saying to you know three years ago boys you were absolutely phenomenal and then you go oh were we You're, yeah you were so why <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean like you know what I mean so maybe <laughs> at that time it's, it's sort of carpe diem time you know it's season day yeah, and I think it's interesting as well because you know the season where you guys came second, they obviously won, and but yeah. they only pulled they only pulled away with about you know five or six games three to games, go. So you were, you were there. That, yeah, that was a, that was a different Aston Villa side. You know that was the yeah. side of El Barrett, uh, Sean yeah. Teal, Paul McGrath, Steve Staunton on the left, Ray Houghton, uh, Kevin Richardson, Gary Parker, Andy Townsend come in the second, so he wasn't there the first year. Uh, mm. You know, Stephen Froggett or Tony Daly, Daley Atkinson, bless his soul, his part, and Dean Sanders, you know. So that was mm. a different side. That was, that was a much more experienced side, uh, full of players like Ray Houghton, Kevin Richardson had done it before and won it. Yeah. So they, yeah. had that, they had that mentality, you know. Um, but, uh, and it was only the last three games that we lost and Man United won. That's what they got. They, they, mm. they beat us again by nine points. But it was neck and neck up until... Up until really the, the the second last game when they clinched exactly. it when they, they they beat I think it was Wimbledon uh, and we had lost uh, we had lost the game we lost to Blackburn then we lost to Oldham at home uh, mm. and they they won both their games. Boz, I must say during the talk about Villa so far, I 
I don't know. Woody has no idea what I'm about to say here, but I, I've obviously got like a screen of notes in front of me and Woody's got his own personal notes here. And, and there's been like, there's a list of names that he's got about your time at Villa. And I reckon you've yes. knocked each one of them off. And as you've said <laughs> them, I've seen a little smirk each time come up in his mouth. He's absolutely over the moon that he's named yeah. this. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, there's lots of talk always about how you came to Man United after Peter Schmeichel. And we'll get to Man United and we'll get to Peter Schmeichel. Yeah. Uh, soon, but there's not people often forget that you when you came to Aston Villa, uh, Nigel Spink was still there, and he yeah. was um, obviously played over 300 games for Villa, club legend, um, and he was still the number one choice at the time when you arrived. So, I just want yeah. to ask first of all, what was your relationship like with him, and did you learn a lot from him? I learned a hell of a lot from him, man. He was one of the goalkeepers I watched as a youngster when. He came off of Jimmy Rimmer in that European Cup final way back in, I think it was 1981. I have to check that. And, uh, and played an absolute blinder and, uh, and helped propel Villa to, to become European champions. I think it was 81-82 season. I think, I think that's what it was. Uh, Peter With with the winner. And, uh, and he was somebody, like I said, I really looked up to. And it was him and the late Les Sealy. Les Sealy had come across at Manchester United. He was a great help as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was just that feeling that, you know, they were coming towards the twilight of their career. Um, so I realized I had a real opportunity and if I, if I took it, I could, you know, I, I could cement my place, which, which fortunately I did. But throughout the time, um, while Nigel was there, uh, until he left, I think he went to Southampton. I, I learned a hell of a lot, probably more than he realized, uh, watching him, talking to him and all that. But somebody with that type of experience and pedigree, uh, you'd be a fool not to. Mm, for sure. Mm. Um, and I think... We've talked so much about Villa, but it's really important, I think, that, that we touch on your, what you think your proudest moment as a villain is because yeah. there's many moments, but can you give us one? Uh, I'll give you two straight away. Uh, winning the League Cups at Wembley. Uh, as a young yep. child, watching Craig Johnson here in Australia uh, lift the FA Cup from that moment uh, back in 1986, I was like, right, that's for me. I'm going to play in England, and I want to do that walk around Wembley. And I was fortunate enough to do it twice with a trophy in mm-hmm. hand. Mm. Um, so there's no doubt about that. Winning major, tr- major trophies is what I played football for. And to be able to do it twice at one of the most famous uh, stadiums in the whole world um, uh, was, was something that, that you'll never forget. Never, never forget. Absolutely. Number two? No, there was uh, both the cups, well, wasn't both it? Trophies. It was both, it was both. Um, yeah, that's, all right. Let's see if those both trophies, are, uh, 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 if you want to put them both at first. Uh, the other thing would be, um, I would say the experience that I gained, um, you know, in that run in for the first Premier League title. I know mm. we come second and you don't like to talk about a lot of times when you come second, but we really did push Man United. And for me personally, well, like, you know, I broke through and the fact that Ron Atkinson had faith in me um, for those last 18 games or so, whenever it was, and that was a, that was fantastic. It was a great experience as well because, you know, every week it was like pressure, pressure, pressure because you didn't win. It was like, you know, one week they would win, then we would win. It was like close, 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 right up until, like you said, the last three games where uh, we, we, we let it slip really. You know, uh, I think that the big one, obviously we lost to Blackburn and they were playing later on that night after we lost to Blackburn. Like I said, I think they were playing Wimbledon um, or Crystal Palace, one of the two. It was at Selhurst Park. And uh, I always remember the pictures of Brian Kidd. It was a great, great manager. He was a manager of mine when I was a young kid as well. He was assistant manager 
um, then I remember pictures of him going around and obviously he was telling the Man United players, like, listen, like, you know, Villa are two or three nil down. It's a real opportunity for them. And I think that night they played Wimbledon, I think it was. Because um, then they played Middlesbrough at home. And I think the last game of the season might have been might have been Palace. One of, like I said, it was one of the two. But uh, that was a wonderful experience. For sure. Well, Boz, you, we know that, you know, the right thing to do is to talk about the team achievements. But you're not one to avoid the spotlight for yourself. And <laughs> I cannot not bring up the... English League Cup semi-final against Tranmere. Yeah. And I know you, you get asked about this all the time and three penalty saves in the shootout, absolutely unbelievable scenes. But Mate, that would have ma- to be the best goalkeeping performance I've ever <laughs> seen. Like, ever. Ever. We play alive, the best goalkeeping performance I've ever seen. It was, thank you very much. It was tingly, but let, let me tell you a story about it. It nearly didn't happen. A lot of people don't know this. People go, what do you mean by that? So, in the... <laughs> In the first leg, we're heavy favourites. We played against Tranmere Rovers, as you know, at Prenton Park, I think their home ground was. They had John, uh, one John Aldridge in the side who was always going to be a danger. Let be careful. Should have, should have been they, won, they won. No, no, definitely not. Definitely, that was a football challenge. See, they got the. <laughs> <laughs> in the first leg, in the first leg, they walloped us three-one. It was only because of the late Danny Atkinson. God bless him. Scored a goal in the last minute, which gave us any type of hope. So the first, the second leg comes. We're 2-0 up within 10 minutes. So technically, in the Football League Cup, back then anyway, I don't know if it's still the case. I think it might be, actually. Uh, we started to score another because away goals didn't count until after extra time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they had that incident, like I said, one-on-one. I came, Aldridge taps it, 2-1. Anyway, we score. We score right before the end. Daniel Atkinson again, amazing. But in the last, I would say, 10 seconds... Of extra time, Tramier get a free kick on the edge of the box. And I won Liam O'Brien, who I was a young apprentice and he was a young professional, with together at Manchester United, comes up to Tate's it. He hits it. Like, I think he's going to go to my left, you know, like over the wall. He hits it back my side. It hits the corner of the upright. Okay? <laughs> that goes in. Forget it. It's all over. Anyway, See you later. Shoot out. Funny enough, come to, this is when sometimes things are destined. Come the penalty shootout, I'd made one save, uh, but we'd missed, I think, two. Um, and Liam O'Brien has a kick to win it. And fortunately for Aston Villa and for me, I saved it. And then it goes then to, to even more sudden death. And then uh, Ian Nolan, I think it was the one. And then, like you said, scenes that even when I watch it now, I get... I get all tingles down my back. It was absolutely phenomenal. And then we, to, to go on to win it in front of my parents who'd come from Australia um, was, was even better. What was the atmosphere like running around? I know you've, obviously you've watched it back and I was watching it this morning again. All your teammates hugging you, people running onto the, to the stadium. It doesn't happen as much these days. Um, but still Very happens, rarely. But yeah, yeah, but what, what was that like? Can you put it into words, the feeling? Uh Something that you work, you know, for, I was only very young then. I think I was only 22. But something that I'd worked out of the 22 years that I've been alive, you'd probably say I'd worked for something like 15 years already towards something like that. It was, mm-hmm. um, it was surreal in a way, but it was something that you worked towards so hard. But it was absolutely fantastic to see that you, you've contributed to making so many people happy. Um, I think it's one of the best feelings you can experience in life. Well, I think fair to say we've touched on Villa a fair whack. I think a little bit more than we actually thought we were going to. But 
work a little bit forward and head to United days. Yeah. And something that I think a lot of people don't realise that, um, you know, your arrival back at United probably wasn't as clear cut as many may think. I mean, from what we believe, you were on your, almost on your way to Juventus um, yes. towards the end of the 99 season. So, you know, what, firstly, why did you choose to leave Villa and sign for United again? But ultimately, what made you pick United over international callings and, and stuff from other parts of Europe like Juve? Yeah. Uh, well, first and foremost, I wanted to leave Villa because I thought the time was right. Yorkie had left. He'd won the treble that year. I wanted to win trophies. Um, simple as that. And I didn't think at Aston Villa that we'd, we'd get the chance to win the major ones, like the league title and things like that. But for at least a, for, for, for a bit of time, John Gregory had taken over, had a wonderful young side, pretty much all English players, um, done a great job. In the following year when I was at United, they got to the FA Cup final. Um, so that's the reason why. That, that's all. Um, and... Uh, the second, what was the second question you asked? Sorry. Um, oh, why I chose United? Oh, it's quite simple because I, I in my opinion, I had an unfinished business. Okay. Um, it was taken away from me just because I wasn't born in the right country, which I had no control over. So I had unfinished mm. business. Um, I spoke to, like you said, Juventus and a, a lot of other clubs as well. But in the end, I told them all when I told them no, that that was the reason why. I just wanted to go back and, and to complete what I started, which I did. Uh, and that was so satisfying. And up until, I think it was up until Manchester City beat it a couple of years ago, it was the biggest margin in Premier League history. Um, it was yep. something like 17 points. Um, mm. But Man City, I think, what, 20 years on, um, they, they, they won it by 18 or 19 points. So, um, so, uh, so uh, in the end, I was proved right. Is there, was there a clear difference in attitude? You spoke about already how Villa just didn't have that yeah. outright want for a trophy after trophy. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, I think it was there. It was there in a, a more of a minority at Aston Villa, but mm-hmm. I think it was there in a majority uh, at, at, uh, at Manchester United. But Manchester United was a completely different place to the one that I'd left in 1991. They had the success that, that Ferguson, the club, had craved for so long. They hadn't won a title since 1968. They'd had that. So that makes a big difference as well. You know, you look back and you think to yourself, had we won that inaugural Premier League season, would have been Aston Villa, not, Aston, not Manchester United. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So little things like that can make a big difference. But I think in the majority, yes, it was kind of like, when I said the majority, the majority of players, staff, everyone was like, you know, oh, we can win this, we can win this, we can win this. You know, and then everyone has those little self-doubts and all that. And that's, those are always extinguished by the fact that it's like, so that's what I was saying with Aston Villa, how important it was that they beat Liverpool 7-2 because... Any little doubts you've got in the future, you say, well, hang on, we've beaten arguably the best club side in the world at the moment, 7-2. Mm. So same with the Man United thing. You know, we can do this, we can do this. Even somebody tells us, well, what do you mean we can do it? Well, we can because we've done it last, last season. We've done it yeah. two seasons ago. We can do it again. We know what it takes to do it. So, so important, those things. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting that you say that as well because when you move from a club like Villa to United, mm. you have to step up your game. And I think that's something like you said, you know, Yorkie did when he moved over. Um, yeah. And look, looking at your relationship with Yorkie, obviously, you know, everyone knows you're still very good mates and yes, remain in contact and whatnot. Um, and we'll get to that. But I guess who else were you close to in that United team? Because they seem yeah. like a really close-knit unit. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, knew some, a lot of, I, I knew a lot of the young boys from my time there, even though when, you know, I was sort of like you could say a young professional, old, old apprentice stage when I was 19. But the, the likes of the Nevilles and um, Nicky Butt, Ryan Giggs had played in my youth team, so he was because he was sort of, a, you know, he was ahead of his age. Mm-hmm. Um, David Beckham, um, Paul Scholes, they were all they were, they were a mm-hmm. year or two behind me anyway, so I knew them sort of vaguely from that. Obviously, New Yorkie, 
Um, uh, and the others I, I sort of got to know, um, you know, your Andy Coles, Roy Keynes, people like that, Raymond Van der Howe, um, you know, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who's, who's a manager now, Henning Berg, all these players, Ronnie Johnson, um, you know, fantastic players, fantastic people, uh, Teddy Sheringham, uh, the list goes on really. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like, you know, you, 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 like I said, you do what you have to do to, to get through, but it was, it was very, very close knit. There were problems always like, you know, there was always Mm. people on edge and this, that, and the other, I said a little bit of strains, maybe the relationship, but I think the most important thing is once everybody went on the pitch, whoever that may be on the weekend or during the week, um, everybody was together. And I think that's, that's so, so important. 100%. Did your relationship with Yorkie have an influence over him coming to the A-League for a season back in 2006? Whilst oh, I, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Because during that time, that was the time when, when I went walkabout, let's call it that. And, uh, and I hadn't spoken to him for some time. So mm-hmm. what I think the influence would have come from the fact that he'd been here with me and the late Hugo Ekiog. I brought him down here two or three times before and he always loved Australia. Okay. Uh, his great mate, Brian Lara, was the same. They loved Australia. And, uh, and it was great to see him come down here. Um, and, and obviously talking to everybody about the effect he had, apparently the effect he had was, was what I would expect, but it was, it was phenomenal. I think that coupled with the fact it was, you know, brand new league. Um, uh, we qualified, I think, for the World Cup in 2005 as well. And what was that, November? I think everything all, all together came together at once. But look, Dwight's a ph- phenomenal performer. Um, and, uh, and, and he's a great player. You know, he, he, was the, he was the missing link, in my opinion, for Manchester United, you know, for, for the season before. Then when they went on to win that treble, he was the difference. I don't think he perhaps gets the, the amount of credit he probably deserves. Uh, he was definitely the icing on the cake there. Um, and, uh, and like I said to you, and, you know, and if you talk to people who played with him here, they'll tell you how good he actually is uh, as a player. I think sometimes... You know, we all think about, uh, you know, Dwight on the night and this, that, and the other. We get a bit lackadaisical, but trust me, he was a phenomenal player. Absolutely phenomenal player. Mm. And I think, uh, look, I, I, you know, we, it's, it's hard for us as Man United fans to have you on the podcast, and, and we've wanted to have you on for so long, to not ask about Sir Alex Ferguson. I think, you yeah. know, it's, it's well documented, obviously, that your relationship had its moments and, and overall, um, you know, it, it was rocky at times, but I think... You know, it's worth asking, what was he like as a manager behind closed doors? Because yeah. we hear the stories, but, you know, first-hand experience, what was he like? What was he like? Yeah, he changed, like I said to you, a lot after the success. There's no doubt about that. Um, but he, had, he, had, he always had authority. Um, obviously, I think as a manager, you have to have that type of authority. Uh, he was a disciplinarian because um, he came into the club. It was different times, different cultures, and he wanted to, to, to change that. Uh, he had a ferocious will to win and determination. Um, in terms of from a tactical perspective, it wasn't nothing spectacular. It wasn't nothing that you turn around and go, say, like a Terry Venables, for example, and sort of say, wow, you know, that was amazing. Or, mm. um, you know, like, you know, you listen to sort of some of the stories that you hear from players and then about Mourinho or this and that and the other. It was, it was very, very simple like that, and even to the point with, you know, especially in the front third, you know, he would let players do what they wanted to do to express themselves. Um, uh, but he was, it was excellent spotting things. Um, like I said, great in terms of will to win. And he wasn't afraid of anyone in terms of, you know, like, you know, sort of smacking them down. I remember once when I was there as a young kid and he used to usually take one or two of the young boys who had been recommended to perform really well, either in matches or training. It was my turn. I performed really well. I think it was in the youth cup. 
And they'd gone to play Sheffield Wednesday. And at that time, Brian Robson was the man. Like, not only at United, but he was the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, full stop. Yeah. Uh, he was captain and, and captain of England. And I remember him saying, so this would have been about, I don't know, 89, 90, something like that. Remember him saying before the game, by the way, before you go out, do not talk back to this referee. No one, because he's very pedantic and he will book you. Please don't talk back to him. Anyway, first 10 minutes comes. Brian Robson sort of does a tackle. It wasn't that bad, but the referee books him. Uh, sorry, not books him, blows a whistle. So it wasn't even a foul. Brian Robson gets up, remonstrates with him. He books him. So, of course, on the bench, us young boys are going, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. What's he going to say? <laughs> Brian Robson, yeah? But uh, fair deuce to him. He came in. He let him have it. He let him have yeah. it. And from that moment, we're all like, wow, if he can do it to him, he can do it to anyone. Um, and in terms of my relationship with him, you know, whatever, whatever. The bottom line is, if he didn't uh, sign me as a youngster and give me that opportunity, I wouldn't be sat here uh, talking about my career now with you guys. It's mm. true. Well, um, mm. Boz, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for talking about specific matches. I feel like it's not done enough in, in <laughs> sports journalism. So I've had a look and I've, and I've picked out when uh, Real Madrid played Man United in the Champions League. And yes. You... <laughs> Sorry, I dropped, I dropped my sanitizer. <laughs> <That's all good. laughs> uh, a 0-0 draw in Spain And yeah. I'm pretty sure you were man of the match Every article I've read uh, To be fair, yeah. I was three So sorry for not watching it live But um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure you were man of the match Lots of positive talks about you And then you were injured And United yeah. conceded three at Old Trafford Lost 3-2 on aggregate And in that specific game, obviously Yeah um, Firstly, what was it like playing in Spain uh, in the intense pressure of a Champions League match? And also, do you reckon if you played that second leg, we United go through only because I reckon that first Roy Keane own goal, you call him out of that, I reckon. I reckon he doesn't put the tackle in, doesn't go in for an own goal and United go through. But that's just my opinion. Mm. Uh, whether we w- would have went through or not, you'd always like to, th- everyone would like to think that. But again, that's hypothetically and, and, and it should remain like that. Who knows? Um, but that again, that was, you know, that was the, the staff's fault for putting me through a training session at that time of season, which there was no need to. Um, and they <laughs> did that. And, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I ended up injured. Really, really was stupid. Um, and, and that was the staff. It wasn't Fergie. It was the staff. And Fergie knew about that. He hit the roof of them as well, to be fair. Uh, in terms of playing in Spain, the Bernabeu's, again, dream come true. Um, felt completely comfortable. And that, you know, that... You know, this is what I worked for towards all my life to be on this stage. And it was just, it was brilliant from the outset. Uh, they obviously had the better of the game or else you wouldn't have been reading about me. You would have been reading about others. Um, <laughs> but, but like I said, it was a fantastic game. Had a very good side at the time. They ended up going on to win uh, the Champions League that year. McManaman, Roberto Carlos, um, I think Raul. Yeah, Raul was um, Some absolutely fantastic players. And, uh, and a wonderful theatre of football. It's, it's like the, the burnabout kind of goes straight, nearly straight up. You know, mm. a little bit like it, you read about Shakespeare's old theatre, The Globe, I think it is. There's no sort of steep backwards, it just goes straight up. And the noise was absolutely phenomenal. And of course, I think it was around March, April time. So that's, that's a really good time of the season after a long winter in England, let alone Spain. By the time Spain <laughs> played, it was like being, it was like back being at Bondi. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so uh, it was just unfortunate. Like I said, I got injured um, because uh, we, you know, we couldn't uh, couldn't see that through. But it was definitely there to be won again that year um, because I think then it was uh, to win that would have been would have meant I think Bayern Munich in the semi-finals. I, I, I'm not 100 percent certain. Um, and then to go to go through that 
would have been Valencia, who had really played in the in the uh, group group stages, and we beaten at home and drew with away from home. So it was a real opportunity, uh, opportunity missed, so far as I'm concerned. Uh, to be honest, Boz, I actually think you're just being a bit modest. I think the moral of the story <laughs> is that you were the key cog in the whole thing, <laughs> and without you, they, they, they clearly didn't get through for a reason. Well, I, I'm not being no, I'm not being modest. Being realistic, you don't really know. Do you? It's kind of like you know what I mean. So it's kind of like yeah. sort of like I don't know anything, anything. It's kind of like oh well, you know, we all like to think oh yeah, so and so was there or something. Yeah, it, it very well maybe, but you don't really know. You know, you don't. Yeah, really for know, sure. You know? Yeah, for, for all we know, I could have played that game and let one through my legs. We would have been having a different conversation right here, right now. <laughs> I think one part of your career, I guess, we sort of have to brush over as well, is your international career. Because no doubt, yeah. you know, that has been stored in itself. Um, yeah. And I've always heard you speak about, you know, how you value the football uh, club football the most and, and your career, yeah. you know, your career goals are always club based. But yeah, um, we have a guy on Facebook called Anthony who really wanted to know um, your thoughts on the '92 Barca Olympics because obviously plenty of drama yeah. surrounding the '92 Olympics. Um, you know, it says you had an unbelievable tournament uh, individually, and making that semi final was an incredible achievement. Do you agree, or do you think you could have gone further? No, I, I, I totally agree. There's no, there's no doubt about it. It was a phenomenal achievement. I always think we could go further. But let's not forget we got Wallop 6-1, although Carl Beer got sent off. But yeah. we got Wallop 6-1 but was by an excellent Polish side in the semi-final. But a very, very good bunch of players. And funny enough, today, uh, you know, I interviewed for the Socceroos channel, Rally Rassage, and, and he was actually speaking about the amount of good youngsters that we used to uh, produce uh, on a consistent basis and get into semi-finals. You know, in, in one case, I think the other 17s got into the final. Uh, in that World Youth Championship under 17s in Scotland. I think that was in 1999. Um, but it was definitely a fantastic achievement. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, like in those days, it was, I don't think there was around a 16. It was straight from the group stage to the quarterfinals. We beat Sweden and, uh, and with Thomas Brolin. And uh, I, I really just think, like I said, the Polish side, especially after the send-off, was just a little bit too good. But there was no, no, no doubt. That's Cassius in the background, I'm sorry. There's no, no doubt it was a fantastic achievement. I think if you said before the tournament, if you said to the late Eddie Thompson and the whole team, um, it, it, you know, do you want to take semifinals? Like if you sign here now, you can get semifinals. I think that was the thing. Well, where do you want us to sign? But yeah, then again, you look back and you think to yourself, well, how did they get there? You know, we beat a Dutch team that was you know, full of big names, names that would become very prominent throughout Europe and were an excellent side. Um, and uh, we beat them, although it was on away goals, we beat them over two legs, you know, with that stunning, stunning goal from Ned Zellig. So, mm. um, you know, there were signs there. If you were looking, if you were sort of looking in terms of opponents and so forth and looking at Australia, I, I would be saying, you know, be careful of this lot because they've, um, you know, they've, they've shocked Holland. You don't just shock Holland and then sort of like, a, it's like, you know, just some type of one-off. To do that over two legs t- it took some going. Mm. Individual brilliance. <laughs> oh well, yeah, he, yeah. I guess you can say that. Yeah. Well, help, help, as I keep telling you, very much helped by the goalkeeper. But still, you're right. <laughs> uh, Boz, you never played in a World Cup for Australia, and and obviously, when we say that statement, we refer back yeah. to the game in 1997. And look, I guess Iran. Yes. Yes, I could. I could quite easily ask, you know, what was it like and, you know, what were the scenes? And obviously I have a few yeah. uh, you know, older friends that say they were there and that it was obviously yeah. a really difficult game to watch after about the 75th minute. But 
<laughs> I do want to. Oh, well, I we do... gave them 75 minutes of entertainment. Exactly, like exactly. <laughs> do you, are you aware that this first goal is quite clearly offside? I mean, I don't want. No, yeah, somebody have said somebody said that to me before, but look, we don't have we didn't have VAR back then, so that's yeah, why I know course. a lot of people because I'm actually a pro VAR person, although I've, I've been a little bit miffed, just like everyone else all around the world with some of the the ways that it's been used and so forth. But um, uh, so I always say, if, if I remember struggling and arguing, I said, "Well, we've had VAR in 1997. That first goal wouldn't have stood," you know. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the night, again, we spoke about this funny enough. Rally Rashford wanted to ask me after the interview, wanted to ask me about it, and uh, and I basically turned around and said to him, "Look, two things. Number one, again, coming back to what we said to at the start of the program, you've got to give a lot of credit to Iran. There's mm. not too many teams around the world who have withstood the type of pressure that they did, and also come back when it looked like basically it was absolutely you know beyond the pale. And Rally was trying to say about the guy coming in landing on the god the, the the parishes but i was like that's nothing to do with it they, if anything that should have gave us a bit of a breather because i thought we did conk out in the end and you have to give a lot of credit to iran and also in the long term i remember saying to harry kuehl and mark Maduka after the game i said i feel sorry for some of them other ones because this is it for them but sometimes you have to go through pain like that and suffering for for the, for the night like happened on 2005 happened um, and i remember saying to both of them it might not be next one it might be the next one but you know, take this and use this as experience. Um, like I said, there was unfortunately for some, they couldn't take that and use those experiences as their final chance. But that's the way the cookie crumbles, really. You have to just accept it, um, mm. you know, and and basically um, realise that this is what makes our game so great, you know. Um, and like I said, you pretty much summed it up, Nick, at the start when you talked about, you know, do other teams get enough credit? No, they don't. You know, Tottenham, you know, imagine there was, uh, Tottenham was 3 nil. Okay, that was mm. people say it's a re- regular league game, but it happens. It happens in football. Um, so uh, you got to accept it. You got to move on with it. And you got to look forward. But and some of the ones I felt sorry for, there was you know there were still some part-time players in that squad. Yeah. And you know someone like myself, I had a game three or four days later, so you put it out your system. Some of them didn't, and and you know it was lingered on for a very very long time. Um, but uh, hopefully, like I said, if you're for me, if you're a true football person, you like to say, okay, that's the type of thing that we needed uh, as a team and probably as a country for us then eight years later in November, whenever it was, uh, to, to get past Uruguay and penalties. Yep. It was a famous, famous night. One of the uh, best nights in Australian football history, if not the probably famous, <laughs> most famous Australian night in football history. But on that though, do you, do you ever get an element of jealousy now about Australia. Uh, yes, we make World Cups, but there is clearly an easier way there now than what it used to be. No. So is there a little no, bit of I, that? Yeah. Number one, I believe uh, jealousy is, uh, is poison. So I'm not mm-hmm. that, I, I don't get jealous as a person. I might get, mm-hmm. uh, what would you call it? Not envious, but that can lead to jealousy, but I might sort of turn around and go, I oh, you know, what, congratulations, well done. I'd like to aspire to be like that one day, yeah. but yeah. never with, and I don't want this to sound disparaging or disrespectful, but never with, Australia, and especially never with the players who I pretty much grew growing up as, and they were young kids, and a lot of them I'd actually recommended and, and helped get work permits in England. So I was actually proud of them uh, to do what they achieved. And, and you've got to remember in my time as well, number one, there wasn't any international breaks. And number two, unlike the vast majority of players, and I'm not saying there's a problem with it, um, and, you know, Ange has done it as well to an extent, you could say from a coaching perspective, Mm-hmm. Um, I never sort of used the Australian uh, team as a stage for me to go on to better things. And there's no problem with that because that's, that is a stage. So people can look at it 
and say, right, well, I'm going to go watch Ned Zelich today play for Australia. Great. He's done brilliant. We'll go and sign him. I went off my own back at 16. That's what I wanted to do. So I didn't want nothing to come in, in between that. And you've got to understand, I'm going to try to put this in the nicest way possible. Club managers in Europe, when you turn around and say, I've got a, uh, a, a game, say even a, I've got a World Cup qualifier against the Solomon Islands, they kind of give you a look as if to say, well, no problem. Yeah, number one, you tell the Australian Soccer Federation to pay you £40,000 a week. And number two, if you, if you get injured, don't bother coming back. Or if you want to go, go by all means, but don't bother coming back because there'll be somebody else in your place. So that kind of shapes your, your feelings and, and the way you look upon uh, playing in those qualifiers. The big ones, no problem. Like that Iran game, I had, to, I had to miss out a game. I think it was against West Tampa Villa. I was like, no problems. But some of these other ones, which got me in trouble with, and they're like Canada, you know, which was on the opening game of the season. Uh, that's why you saw the result out of it, because the pressure was absolutely immense. And I can understand why. You, you know, people always automatically think, oh, big clubs. Yeah, but, you know, when you've worked all your life and you sacrifice so much, and, and then you put again and put under pressure, and you realise as well that Australia had other good goalkeepers, as long as if it was going to be, you know, a massive miss, compared, you know, and they were okay as long as it was the big games. You kind of can understand their point of view. Well, I did perfectly put it that way. Tell you what, Damo, I've just looked up from the screen and I've seen that we've almost clicked over an hour and that means we're pretty much running out of time. So I think this is the moment we're going to have to cut this up and then we're going to have to readdress everything the Boz has missed out on for the nightclub on the next week's episode. Mate, for those who ask questions on social media, we're definitely getting to them. For those who like to hear our quirky questions that we ask every guest, they will come. And so much more because it means we're going to have some fresh news from the Premier League as well when we chat to him next week. But for now, if they want to hit us up on the socials to find out when the, that episode is released, where can they find us, Woodrow? Damo, you can find us on the Insta at Premier League Nightclub. And where can you find us on the Twitter? You can find us on the Twitter at PL Nightclub or search us up on Facebook. Make sure to subscribe or follow on wherever you listen to this podcast to, again, find out when it is released. But for now, uh, Bozza, take it away. Thank you, everyone, for listening to part one of the Premier League Nightclub. Make sure you tune in for part two. I'll be answering all your questions, good, bad or indifferent, um, because I truly believe that everyone's question uh, deserves to be read out and to be answered. Take care. See you soon.